Welcome to New Mexico and Focus, the podcast for Monday, June 6, 2022. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you had a terrific weekend, good time with friends and family, ready to hit the ground running on another work week. We are as well, but before we do that, we want to share some more content from our most recent episode along with some extras as well. And we're going to start off with our line opinion panel from our most recent show. And a reminder, that is Diane Snyder. She's a line regular and former state senator. Also, Sophie Martin, another line regular and an attorney. And rounding out the panel that joined us virtually via Zoom, Algernon de Massa from the Las Cruces Sun News. And we uh, continue to track the devastation from this unprecedented wildfire season here in New Mexico. Talked about it, the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire, now the biggest in state history and still not done, just causing utter devastation. Then there's the Black Fire, which was already the third biggest fire in New Mexico history at last check down in the Gila wilderness. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the wildfires. And news broke last week that an official cause had been determined for the Calf Canyon fire which, uh, of course, combined with Hermit's Peak, which we've known for a while, started out as a prescribed burn that got out of control. And it turns out similar, although slightly different situation with Calf Canyon. Uh, That was these burn pits, they call them, or burn piles. That was something that had been done way back in January and apparently smoldered even through several snowstorms and reignited and kicked off the Calf Canyon fire before it combined with the Hermit's Peak fire into the biggest fire in state history. So still lots and lots of questions about accountability here, about the future of prescribed burns and how we do this uh, and how responsible it is to do this considering so many crazy variables like this. We're going to continue to follow this story, of course, as well as all the other wildfires. You can find a bunch of resources in the description here for this episode, but let's kick it over to the line opinion panel and host Gene Grant. More damning news from the U.S. Forest Service on the largest fire in New Mexico history. The Calf Canyon fire, which merged with the Hermit's Peak fire, as you know, was also started by the remnants of a controlled burn. But unlike Hermit's Peak, This burn was carried out in January and apparently stayed dormant, reigniting in April. It's known as a sleeper fire. We'll talk about that in a quick second. Welcome back to our line opinion panelists. We spent the last few weeks talking about pushing prescribed burns earlier into the year, into months like January. And Sophie, how does this revelation change that thought process? Because this was a very separate situation from a time of year problem. Yeah, I mean, I think it highlights the complexity of the prescribed burn programs. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's um, you know, not to be too sort of lighthearted about this, but you started by talking about controlled burns. And I think we have to kind of reach an agreement that we're not going to call them that anymore. Right. Because um, we have now too many examples of how they have gotten out of control in our state mm-hmm. uh, and in our region. But, but I think... You, you know, we have a lot of moving pieces happening here. It's not just, and I think some of the coverage on the burns has really um, highlighted this. It's not just a matter of how these prescribed burns are set, when they're set. We have the changing situation with climate change. We have a changing ecosystem here that um, we're, you know, we're having, I think, 
professionals are having to constantly track what's growing where. Um, and then, and I just, I'm reminded as well of like the surprise that apparently was experienced with one of these, with these prescribed burns over the quantity of wind. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that there's not really a very simple solution here. Mm -hmm. Certainly this issue highlights the need for, um, even more resources put into, um, you know, maintaining our, our ecosystem and, you know, really looking at continuing to look at and put money into thinning burns etc so mm-hmm. that this stuff doesn't continue to get out of hand and it's, right. t- it's tough because i just said like w- you know continue to do burns and at the same time we're talking about the problem with burns mm-hmm. you know algernon to make sophie's point uh that sleeper fire basically that pile of dormant stuff it's it was there under three winter storms and then they got a report of a pile, you know, of, of smoke in the area, and the fire resumed. The crews came in, responded, and it resumed 10 days later and breached those containment lines. Very difficult situation. And so I'm curious, you know, what more can be possibly done here after these kind of, you know, situations come up and this kind of complexity? I, I as a reporter, I have lots of questions. Mm -hmm. I have lots of questions about how decisions about prescribed burns are made in response to changing conditions uh, related to climate change Mm -hmm. um, and just the fuel moisture levels that are astronomically low. Astronomically is not the right word. The opposite of astronomically, very low. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a meeting, I was at a public meeting in Messia following a brush fire that broke out in the Mesilla Valley Bosque State Park back in April. And the fire chief said that fuel moisture levels in our forests are lower than he's ever seen. And he commented that the timber in our forests across New Mexico is drier than what you would buy as lumber at Home Depot. Wow. I mean, it's just, if you drive on Interstate 10 through Southern New Mexico, there are these big electronic signs begging motorists not to flick their cigarette butts out because that is all it takes. And so in these conditions, you know, how was the Forest Service making decisions and adjustments about burns? Because just because a pile of wood is sitting there and it gets a little bit of snow on it, a little bit of precipitation, does not mean that it has been uh, sodden or, or, or extinguished. Yep. You know, Senator, um, we've got a potential of significant flash flooding from monsoon season coming up here. Again, this, the, 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 another difficult question, what does forest crews need to do to start focusing on preventing that kind of disaster? Because that's going to cost a lot of money to make sure we're okay on that. Well, it goes back to the image that comes to mind for me is the chicken or the egg. Mm-hmm. Come on, we wouldn't have this flooding issue if we hadn't had the fire. Mm-hmm. And and that sleeper fire, I'm going, it, I, I was reading the description from one of the forest pe- experts about what happened and the sequence of it. And, everything. and I'm going, wait a minute. Smokey Bear taught me how you extinguished a campfire a hundred years ago. That's Maybe right. not quite that long, but I'm just going... These are the experts. Why on earth would there be such a thing as a sleeper fire? And and the materials they were, uh, it part of it goes back for me to can why are we still not allowed to thin our forest, mm-hmm. get out some of the underbrush because 
other stories showed us that the homes, particularly in the Riodoso area, that had cleared X squares of land out a distance from their homes are many of the homes that were not burned. So, mm-hmm. and I'm going, okay, if that works there, then wouldn't it work every place else? That's a good point. Let me, let me uh, jump in here real quick. I want to get something in uh, with Sophie before we run out of time real quick. Real quick. Hey, Sophie, in a recent gubernatorial debate for the Republican candidates fighting for the party's nomination, the candidates universally agreed this is just a forest management issue. And Mark Ronchetti, a career television meteorologist, actually said the majority state has seen above average precip- precipitation the last year, which is not true. In fact, the state is moving into a second year of almost universal and historic drought. Are you, say, are you saying that you don't believe the weatherman? I'm- well, weathermen being what they are, how damaging is it that kind of rhetoric to actually dealing with what we know is a major issue for our state as we continue to warm, as you were saying earlier? I, I mean, I think I think that unfortunately, um, and I don't think I'll surprise anybody on this panel or watching from home, you know, so much of what we at one time would have just said is science has been politicized and um you know people seem to feel free with um being able to develop their own version of fact and so you know is it damaging yeah especially if it means that we spend the next couple of decades arguing over whether it should be you know the republican position or the democratic position mm-hmm. you know which which one or or the science per, this the science position somewhere you know somewhere in there as well um this politiza- politicization it it shouldn't be reaching into this kind of um this kind of situation but of course yeah. it does it does doesn't it thanks again to our line panel as always this week be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics we covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. Equally depressing story and one we've been following for quite a while here on the show, PFAS contamination. This is a chemical that's called a forever chemical, and it's actually a family of thousands of chemicals, but they're called forever chemicals because they do not break down. They just build up in your body if you ingest it, build up in water, build up in the soil, wherever it ends up. And this is in all kinds of things in your daily life, from nonstick pans to waterproofing um, uh, waterproofing products to microwave popcorn, even in some dental floss packaging. Uh, this is bad, bad stuff. We've been talking about it for a while, especially in terms of another source for this, which is firefighting foams uh, that we know the military used for years, especially at military installations here in New Mexico, namely Cannon and Holloman Air Force Base. Uh, Last spring, 2021, we headed down to a dairy farm near Cannon Air Force Base where we know these firefighting foams with these PFAS chemicals leached into the ground and the water supply for this dairy farm, Highland Dairies, owned by Art Scop. He has over 3,600, sorry, that's 3,600 dairy cattle that have been contaminated by these PFAS chemicals, which means the meat is not viable, the milk is not viable, and yet Artscop has been on the hook for caring for these animals and for dealing with the fallout from this. You may remember our groundwater war investigation where we've been tracking all of this. You can find a link to that on our description here for this to see all of our reporting but it is just an unbelievable story if we hadn't been reporting on all of this when the state found out about this contamination 
they asked the Air Force and the Department of Defense to come up with a plan for dealing with this, and the response from the military was to immediately turn around and sue the state, saying they did not have authority to compel that type of action. The state has now sued back, and that is tied up in the court system. And we've again been talking about this a lot with the Environment Secretary for New Mexico, James Kenney. He joined us with an update on those cattle at the Highland Dairy near Clovis. Art Scop uh, recently had to euthanize all 3,600 of those animals. Just a horrific idea to even think about. So we wanted to find out exactly what that means, how that works, how you still dispose of those carcasses even after the fact so that the contamination doesn't continue as well as get updates on any military action. And you're going to hear just an unbelievable story from Secretary Kenny about a similar situation at an Air Force base in Texas where the military is actively working with state officials to clean up. And yet here in New Mexico, the response was much different. Again, a lawsuit. And so our land and groundwater war correspondent Laura Paskus talks to Secretary Kenny who has a very pointed and interesting response to why the military is acting so differently in those two unique situations that are connected by this PFAS contamination. So again, Groundwater War, go to the website for all of our reporting on this issue over the last several years. But here now, an update on the situation with Laura Paskus and Environment Secretary James Kenney. Secretary Kenny, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So in 2018, Art Scop, who has a dairy down in Clovis, Highland Dairy, was notified by the Air Force that his dairy cows and his family had been drinking contaminated water. This is water contaminated with PFAS. Can you remind us what are PFAS and, and why should humans and say dairy cows not be exposed to this? Sure. Um, PFAS are a set of chemicals that are used in sort of everyday applications. Um, things like uh, your outdoor wear, your uh, pots and pans that have nonstick coatings. Um, they're used in a lot of household items. Even stain-resistant uh, carpets have typically PFAS coatings on them. Those coatings uh, or that chemical, that group of chemical of which there are thousands that fall into that category, are now known to cause certain types of developmental uh, disorders as well as cancers. So they have a whole host of, of toxicity associated with them uh, when they get into the body or into a cow. Um, and they're really hard to expel, almost impossible. So they bioaccumulate, meaning they just continue to build up and build up in the body. And they also do that in the environment. They build up and build up and they don't break down. Um, different than say like an oil spill, which microbes eventually will break that down. Uh, PFAS chemicals just live in the environment. That's why they're called forever chemicals. And so the, the PFAS that made its way into the Highland Dairy water, um, that was coming from Cannon Air Force Base. Um, what kind of, what do we know about that exposure? Like where that was coming from? Yeah, so um, the other application of PFAS chemicals is they're really good at putting out fires. 
So you'll hear a lot of PFAS used as a firefighting foam, and the Defense Department is one of the, has been one of the largest um, consumers of this firefighting foam. Uh, so Cannon Air Force Base does a lot of practice uh, fire extinguishing activities or drills. Um, and those firefighting foams for years that contain PFAS were being washed into the groundwater under Cannon Air Force Base. That groundwater then continues to migrate. It moves underground. It migrates off base and then moved under uh, Art Scop's farm where he was pulling up that groundwater to feed and water his cows. Um, and that's the exposure pathway that those PFAS chemicals took. The PFAS in Clovis continues to move and it continues to be there and it's significantly high concentrations of PFAS in that drinking water. And so the state has been trying for years now to hold the Air Force, the U.S. military, the Pentagon accountable. Um, what efforts have you attempted and where do things stand in terms of the military um, cleaning up this pollution, stopping it from continuing? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think before we ever tried anything other than diplomacy and seeking the Air Force take responsibility for the pollution it caused, um, the Air Force sued the state of New Mexico to prevent the state from requiring cleanup. So the first thing that happened was they determined that they polluted the groundwater and then they sued the state of New Mexico to say, we're not going to take responsibility and clean this up. That's obviously unacceptable. Um, and we then, the state of New Mexico, sued the Defense Department to require them to comply with state law. Um, since that time, the litigation on both sides has stalled, uh, but that hasn't stalled the state of New Mexico from taking responsibility for the PFAS contamination. To date, we've probably spent about $6 million um, making sure that drinking water is safe, both public water um, as well as private water wells. And then we've also tried to delineate, meaning identify where the plume is under Clovis to make sure that other dairies and the drinking water wells are safe. Um, and then we've also hired a contractor to do the groundwater modeling to figure out the relative speed at which it's moving and ultimately to do the cleanup. So in short, the Department of Defense has done pretty much nothing, and the state of New Mexico has picked up the tab and, and taken responsibility for the communities it's polluting. So this, this contamination has reached various wells in the Clovis area, but Mr. Scott at Highland Area is kind of um, maybe the, the, the biggest impact. Sure. And we visited him back in 2021, last spring, to talk to him and saw his, you know, thousands of cows at his dairy that he was unable to sell the milk from anymore, but, um, you know, had kept these um, thousands of cows alive. Um, what's now become of those cows? Yeah, so those 3,600 cows over time, some of them um, simply just died of old age be and he wasn't able to sell his milk, but he still had to maintain those cows. Um, to see if the PFAS levels would naturally decline is what I understand he was keeping them alive for. Uh, as of today, all 3,600 cows have now been euthanized. 
Um, so those cows uh, are no longer uh, living, and and those and the cows today are being composted on site at his farm, um, and we're working with him to make sure that those hazardous carcasses are properly managed so that PFAS doesn't continue to move through the environment, but we actually take it out of the environment. So let's talk about that a little bit about um, cows being, uh, and cow carcasses now, being hazardous waste. Um, how does that change how and where these, these bodies can be buried or disposed of? I mean, I, it's, it's a, a difficult conversation to have, but I'd like to understand kind of the yeah, no, I, I think it is a really difficult conversation. And, I, you know, as somebody who's been um, in the environmental business as a regulator for 25 plus years, working on hazardous waste issues, um, I've never encountered a scenario like this before uh, where a, uh, you know, a cow has become a hazardous waste. It's, it's, one, not something I'd ever want to deal with, and two, not something I've ever had to deal with. And many regulators haven't had to deal with this, but I think it's going to be something we're, we're going to see more of, unfortunately. Uh, but those cows, um, those carcasses contain a, a PFAS in an amount that exceeds uh, the EPA health advisory uh, limit of 70 parts per trillion. Um, it exceeds what New Mexico considers a hazardous waste. Uh, and therefore, we want to make sure that those cows, upon their decomposition, that we clean up the soil and any remaining materials. And there's going to be, we're seeking information on what the proper disposal would be, long-term disposal. Um, but it's likely going to be something like scooping everything up, taking it to a hazardous waste landfill, um, or taking all that soil and organic matter that's remaining to a hazardous waste incinerator um, and disposing of it to break down that really hard chemical of PFAS into something that is no longer PFAS. Uh, that's what the incinerator would do. So there's, there's, there's a few methods on the horizon that might be right, um, but we're seeking information to make sure we get it right. So are the cows just being held on the property or? Yeah, it's a horrific scene. Um, the cows have been placed into ditches uh, where they will be, um, de where they will continue to decompose. Uh, Artscop is covering those cows with topsoil and things to make sure that the smell and the migration of the material doesn't uh, get out of those ditches. Uh, so it's, it's, it's pretty horrific, it's a pretty terrible event, and one that we were hoping that the cows would metabolize the PFAS, but after multiple years, the levels have not come down. Their magnitude's higher than what we would have expected or hoped them to, to be, um, to treat them as more of like a solid waste. Mm -hmm. So this sounds horrible and also expensive. Um, who's paying for all of this? Once again, New Mexicans are paying for this. Um, uh, as I said earlier, the Department of Defense hasn't done anything outside of the fence line of Cannon Air Force Base to really take responsibility for the long-term cleanup 
or management of these hazardous carcasses. Uh, so we stepped in, the New Mexico Environment Department, and bringing $850,000 to the table. Um, and I want you and the viewers to know that $850,000 is money that we have for hazardous emergencies throughout the state of New Mexico. Okay. So by putting that money into managing this uh, singularly large event, we have a lot less money as a state to respond to other hazardous emergencies throughout the state. Um, and the way that that money gets replenished is through penalties in which we assess against hazardous waste mismanagement. Um, so in other words, we have less money for uh, those other emergencies until we have emergencies where we penalize people. It's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, but so New Mexico is bringing $850,000 to make sure that they're properly disposed of. Uh, and then ArtScop will be uh, responsible for bringing money to the table as well for something that he didn't cause but became a victim to. Right. What about the U.S. Department of Agriculture? Are they a part of this process um, in regulating or reimbursing? Yeah, so the USDA um, has a program in which they uh, will reimburse a dairy farmer if their, if their cows become adulterated with chemicals like PFAS. That's fairly new, and this is the first time that I'm aware of in the country that um, a dairy farmer is using that program uh, for specifically PFAS. And so ArtScop has made his application. We've signed off on that application uh, to the USDA to seek funding to be reimbursed for the, the dairy cows. Um, so that's, that program is underway and something that I think Art will be successful in uh, finding some funding there. So we know that the military, the U.S. military, has contaminated sites across the nation and across the world with PFAS. Um, are other states dealing with anything similar? What do their kind of relationships look like when it comes to these cleanup issues? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and it's an interesting answer in that, you know, about 200 miles roughly east of Cannon Air Force Base is Reese Air Force Base mm -hmm. in Texas. And when you look at the dichotomy of what I'm about to say, it really is mind boggling. Um, the Air Force is cleaning up Reese Air Force Base, treating PFAS as a hazardous material. Uh, they're doing it with the state of Texas in a collaborative way. Um, when we asked them to do the same thing here in New Mexico, we were met with a federal lawsuit to try to stop us from preventing, uh, to try to stop us from requiring cleanup. So you have two Air Force bases, both with PFAS contamination, one where the federal government is cooperating with the state of Texas, and one where the federal government is suing New Mexico um, to, to ensure that there's no responsibility. Um, and then there's bases all throughout the United States that are in varying stages of cleanup. Uh, we look at that, we follow that nationally. Um, the Navy just paid for a wastewater treatment plant with the state of Pennsylvania to clean up PFAS. We don't have that here. Um, and in fact, when we've asked the Department of Defense for their contracts as to what they plan to do at, in Clovis, 
we were met with a response that we would have to, uh, that that was not information we were privy to as the state of New Mexico. Um, and we filed a Freedom of Information Act request to try to get that from the Department of Defense just so we could be better stewards of New Mexico's taxpayer dollars. So why does the federal government, why is New Mexico treated differently? Yeah, and I, you know, I'm left with a very short list of answers to that question. Um, it's not technical, it's not legal, it's not scientific. So what does it look like? It looks like there's a state, uh, New Mexico, that's rural, uh, that tends to have, um, tends to be a poorer state and we tend to have a browner population. And I think it's an environmental injustice uh, or a textbook environmental justice issue that New Mexico is not getting an equitable treatment uh, compared to other states across the country. Uh, and I think that sends some real concern uh, to me as a regulator that the federal government is not practicing what it preaches. Well, Secretary Kenny, thank you for having this really hard conversation with me today. I appreciate it. And thank you for covering this and glad to be here. let you know that was our full interview with Secretary Kenny. We did not have time for all of it in the show last week, but we love to be able to bring you that in its entirety here. We'd love to know what you think about this development and this ongoing situation in New Mexico, especially the point that Secretary Kenny made about the state has put in $6 million so far and $850,000 on this uh, particular cleanup effort that that it means is money that can't go towards other hazardous waste situations in the state, uh, all because the military has yet to step up and uh, lay out a plan for remediation, uh, really to even delineate where this plume of PFAS chemicals is and where it might be headed. So we'll continue to stay on that, but if you want to read about more of our coverage of that, you can do that there on the Groundwater War website. All right, we're going to head back to our line opinion panel now, uh, and we are talking about a new proposal for a new interstate highway in New Mexico. You heard that right. When's the last time we were building interstate highways? But this would be something that would basically connect Raton uh, down on the eastern edge of the state into Texas and could have huge economic benefits uh, and impacts for sure. This is uh, something where money has been secured at this point, but plans still being developed and, you know, a good decade off at the earliest, but not too early to start talking about those impacts. So let's jump back in with our line opinion panel and host Gene Grant. Recent federal legislation could lead to a new interstate highway cutting through New Mexico. The proposed stretch of road would connect Interstate 27 in Laredo, Texas to Interstate 25 up in Raton. Now, just south of the Colorado border, if you, in case you don't know that. Let's welcome back the Line Opinion Panel. This has major implications for a large part of New Mexico. And Algernon, I want to start with you down south there. What are you hearing about the impact it would have in your area of Las Cruces? Uh, it's not entirely clear how much direct impact that has, but mm -hmm. um, trade does have a way of benefiting the whole state. And down in the southern part of New Mexico, we're a, very crucial gateway to trade with Mexico. We have uh, ports of entry that are not as large as um, our companion ports in uh, the El Paso area. However, um, 
uh, given recent events, as well as uh, some recent investments in our infrastructure, we have a lot coming through from the from this from the U.S. Mexico border that is shared by New Mexico. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a highway in the northern part of the state um, facilitating trade and also just diverting routes that can sometimes be jammed on some of our older roads really does have a way of sort of spreading like a blood vessel system across the state mm -hmm. and really just helping things move around logistically. Mm -hmm. Boy, as I read it, uh, Algernon, the folks in Texas are very excited, actually. Down, the, you know, they seem to be more excited than we are. I mean, Henry Cuellar, a bunch of others are talking about Texas GDP would grow by $17 billion, creating 178,000 construction jobs and 17,000 long-term employment opportunities. Why are they so more, more excited about it than we are? Is there something in it for them that we're not catching on to here? It's recreational <laughs> marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if we know that they're actually more excited. I mean, I, I mean, the, I think the direct impact for Texas is is very clear. And it's also uh, turning a page on the incident that took place in April, where um, some of the, you know, some of the cross boundary traffic was held up because of a you know, because of what the governor decided to do with secondary inspections. Mm -hmm of commercial trucks um you know it turns a page on that and it's actually a story about building something and, and connecting in a, in a to a different part of the country and yeah. facilitating what will lead to a lot of jobs and economic activity good point there let's bring it closer to home sophie people living in albuquerque santa fe it can be easy for us to forget transportation issues almost every other city the state faces but can we underscore the importance of a major highway like this for smaller communities in the eastern part of the state kind of a big Listen, deal when you think about it's it. Gonna it it's mm -hmm. going to be huge for Raton. And I, and I need to sort of dis put the disclaimer out there that a little over 10 years ago, I did do some tourism work for Raton. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's that, not, sure. not in the last 10 years. But, you know, so much of Raton's uh, economy is built around transportation yep. and is built around the traffic there. You know, Again, a little over 10 years ago, the then mayor of Raton would joke that um, such a huge portion of their budget was built on the fact that the speed limit dips when you get to Raton and then goes back up. And, you know, that they really do that city, that town really does benefit from the traffic. And I think that that is is going to be true for the communities around there as well, not to mention their ease in getting around, getting getting into Texas, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I was joking before, too, about the the medical marijuana thing, but <laughs> I'm mean, sorry, the recreational marijuana thing. But, um, you know, Texans do come to New Mexico, as we know, as the Santa fans know very well. Mm -hmm. um, and having these additional routes, I think, really does open up the north and eastern parts of the state. I'd be interested in where really the exits way. and entrances are going to be planned. That's a big deal. Yeah. That's a big lobbying effort right there. You know, totally. Senator, according to one figure of the group that I'm going to mention what I mentioned about Texas, uh, you know, the years-long construction project will create more than a million new jobs. I don't know about that number, but an, a, a $287 billion increase in GDP along the corridor. That's no small money. You know, I mean, should we be lobbying hard for this if this, that, that kind of money is at stake? Did you ask me? Yes, ma'am. Sorry about that. I'm sorry. I was thinking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we shouldn't ignore it, certainly. But yeah. I have to tell you, my, when I, the, I just read the headlines and stuff first, and I went, what? Our roads, are, our interstates here, the ones we have are so bad. Why are we going to build a new one instead of fixing all these? 
Yeah. Well, then I started looking at it and uh, I was going, wow. Yes, I saw the pictures of the lanes of traffic backed up trying to turn off on 87th to go into Texas. And the other thing that struck me like a, a hammer was that Houston is their nearest port for uh, uh, you know sending out their products. Mm -hmm. And that's a heck of a ways down there. But the, and also then I was looking at it and I said, you know, if you've got the traffic going into Texas, going that way, because some will take the, the four lane little rural roads, but a lot of that is coming into Albuquerque mm -hmm. and then going east on I-40. So it will reduce that traffic and make our roads, our interstates back and forth on Interstate 40 and the lower parts of I-25 safer. So it seems like uh, it seems like a good idea after I thought about it and did a little homework. But I'm not sure this this is federal money. But when you build things like this, there always ends up being some state money, and we've got plenty of it right now. Do does our legislature have the will to do that and help out? And and I'm so afraid it may become a another one of those rule versus metro oh, yeah. uh, arguments yep. that we've seen. Key but now there. is, in my opinion, now is the time to do it mm -hmm. if we're going to do it. Yep. Because it will cost New Mexico money. Uh, but the offset of all that business that grows along an interstate, you know, I don't know that we have Stuckies right. anymore, but Stuckies yeah. made millions and millions of dollars right. along the interstate. That's an apt example. Absolutely. Yeah. That's an absolutely apt and, example. And that's something, gas stations, you know, I that's mean, right. I see this, and if you've ever driven across northeastern New Mexico, as as they commonly say, uh, uh, the senators up there, is that there are more cows than constituents. Mm -hmm. So if we could do something to help them in their economy, That's right. then it, it, as Algernon said, it benefits the whole state. Good points there. Thank you all for your thoughts on the new interstate highway proposal. A little bit off, but let's plan for the good things. We'll be back with one final topic for our line panelists in less than 10 minutes. That's all for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, once again, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS. We so appreciate you taking us with you throughout your daily uh, routines, whether that's to the gym or on a walk or on the bike. Um, but it's a great way for us to bring you all of the content we work so hard to bring you. We hope you appreciate that. If you do, do us a favor, leave us a review here. And be sure to spread the word. Get others to subscribe to the podcast. All of it helps to keep the work moving forward. But we hope you all have a terrific week. And we'll be back with a brand new episode this coming Friday. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for listening.